0: Welcome to A Healthy Exchange, brought to you by Rural Health Pro's Grow, Connect, Thrive, Be Inspired initiative, which aims to help enhance the capability and well-being of the New South Wales health workforce, particularly in rural and remote areas. Before we start, we acknowledge the traditional custodians on the lands of which we work and live. We pay our respects to elders, past, present and emerging. Dr. Ben Bravery is an extraordinary man who decided to become a doctor after he was diagnosed with bowel cancer at 28. Having originally trained as a zoologist, Ben was working as a scientist in Beijing when he started to experience some unusual symptoms. At the time he was busy running his business, he'd just fallen in love with his now wife, had no family history of cancer, so wasn't too worried. However, after his mum urged him to see a doctor then was diagnosed with stage 3 colorectal cancer. He describes that time in his life as earth-shattering, adding he also felt powerless at times, not understanding exactly what was going on and not knowing the right questions to ask. It was his first time as a patient and while undergoing treatment, he says he began to see a concerning divide between patients and doctors in terms of treatment and care. He began thinking about how to close this divide, realising that in order to do just that, he had to get inside the system and become a doctor. So, at age 32, he changed careers and enrolled in medical school. After several years studying, interning and specialising in psychiatry, Ben is now working in a Sydney hospital and is a fierce advocate for patients. He's spoken at conferences, industry events, to the media and his recent book, the patient doctor, has garnered widespread acclaim and interest. Dr. Bravery, welcome to the podcast today. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's our pleasure. Now, can we start with zoology? What is zoology and what drew you to that profession?
1: Well, zoology is the study of animals. And that's a good way to start this because a lot of people find it disappointing when I tell them that Zoology does not involve zoos because most people expect me to come up with stories of, you know, feeding tigers and washing elephants, which is, of course, what I did not do. Um, I specialised on a part of zoology that focuses on wildlife and, in particular, I got interested in how to protect wildlife. That, That kind of started from a very early age and I kind of just was born with this interest in helping little critters.
0: And so that love of uh, little creatures, wanting to look after them, ultimately led you to do some work in Beijing.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I grew up in Queensland and then took myself off to China, weirdly. Having become a little bit um, jaded, or maybe cynical about the Australian environmental protection system. I'd been working in Canberra at the time and I, I just felt like I was rubber stamping mining Applications and you know, in the mid 2000s, all the government really was interested in were whales. So, interestingly, I took myself to one of the most populated countries on earth, <laughs> you know, that really struggles for space and resources, and where humans and animals are in conflict nearly everywhere you look. I ended up accruing all kinds of knowledge about Chinese species. Um, and happened to attract a lot of researchers interested in giant pandas. And and so I found myself, um, you know, accumulating all this knowledge and these interesting facts um, about giant pandas. And, you know, everybody loves (laughs) the giant panda. So that made often for quite good um, table conversation and dinner talk.
0: Now, while you were in Beijing leading this wonderful career, you were diagnosed with cancer and that led to a career change. How did your time as a stage three cancer patient change you as a person?
1: Yeah, the diagnosis came as a complete shock, but it had this, you know, this additional shock because I was twenty eight. I was diagnosed, you know, with a, a stage three cancer in a family that didn't have, you know, cancer in its family tree. So it was the last thing that I was expecting to find, and um, really just kind of stopped me in my tracks. I was building a business in Beijing that stopped overnight. I had just fallen in love and had been dating Sana for about five months, obviously nearly dying, Mm. (laughs) um, grossly impacted that. And then I was in another country. So I had to come back to Australia, complete the diagnostic process and get treatment. Cancer can change everything about who you are, For me, it meant um, pulling out of the the life I just described and really focusing on just one thing, which was trying to stay alive and getting rid of the noise, you know, that had accumulated, became easier and really focusing on me. Mm. You know, it's a little bit selfish in a way because you kind of just have to, you know, zero in on yourself and throw everything at this one goal. It caused me to focus on people, which sounds weird because I'm now a doctor, <laughs> but you could tell like I was mainly interested in animals. And for a long part of my career, people were the enemy of animals. And, you know, I liked people, of course, but I didn't love people. Mm. <laughs> I, thought, I thought that they, they had some questions to answer. And so now I found myself surrounded by other people who were unwell I found myself volunteering and supporting other people going through illness and then advocating for the rights of young adults with cancer. So it really altered me internally. You know, I've got scars and neuropathy and those kinds of things, so it altered me externally. But I think more fundamentally, it changed my purpose.
0: During your treatment, you noticed a divide between doctors and patients. Can you explain what this divide is and how it affected you as a patient?
1: Yeah, I'd I'd never really been sick, so I was thrown into this, you know, the healthcare machine and very quickly had to learn its language and how to navigate it and who was in control. You know, it seemed to be mostly built around doctors um, because, you know, I was effectively in their workplace, which is something I realised early on that the world didn't really feel built for me, it felt like it it had been built for them. And and fair enough, that's where they go every day to do their work. But that meant that the differences between us were sometimes you know exaggerated or or exacerbated. Just the fact that you you know you get a hospital ID band, you don't have your own clothing, you're stuck in often a shared ward with that little tiny piece of plastic between you and and dignity often, the fact that the doctor understands more About what's happening inside my body than me. They're talking to other people about that, you know, in ways that I don't understand or I'm privy to. But I also felt that sometimes there was a difference in what we were interested in, you know, and I I don't mean like, you know, what, what we're watching on Netflix or what we're listening to in terms of podcasts. I mean what we were interested in in terms of illness. So the doctors were often extremely technical, clinical, and removed. And sometimes, I needed the emotional world and the technical world to come together because we're emotional creatures, right? We don't make decisions in a technical vacuum. And I think that was really kind of brought home to me when I started radiation chemotherapy, which I had before my ultra low anterior resection to pull the tumor out. I started to experiment with alternative medicine. And that came about because my sister in a way to want to support me, had got me a voucher for an energetic healer. Now, I had a science degree, right? And I had honors in science and I'd published and run journals and worked with scientists. I knew there was no evidence for this, but I did it. And I found myself captivated by this particular therapeutic model. You know, the clinician didn't once lay hands on me. It's an off, you know, hands-off treatment, they call it. But from the moment I walked into her waiting room you know, there was a warmth and a comfort. There was a focus on the humanity. In the consult, you know, she talked a lot about my past and what mattered to me and what mattered to me going forward. And during our sessions, while her hands were kind of hovering above my abdomen doing whatever they were doing, you know, we'd talk and it was deep and it was kind of The stuff that maybe a psychologist would do, but because she was performing a technical task, there was this, these these blurred lines. And it occurred to me that I got very little of that in the hospital setting. You know, I'm not saying hospitals need to do energetic healing. What I'm saying is we can learn a lot from the way other modalities approach people, right? They focus on the whole person, they focus on what matters to them, they take an interest in who they are. And, And there's a reciprocity. Which, you know, I felt quite rewarded by and refreshed by. It wasn't just the doctor telling me technical things; them knowing everything about me, and me having very little understanding of who they were and what mattered to them. And I, you know, I take that forward now in my medical career because I, you know, I think as a lot more people choose alternative paths, we've got a lot to learn from that sector. And if and if we just ignore it, I think it'll come at a cost.
0: When you say we've got a lot to learn from that sector, are you referring to the humanity elements of that?
1: Yeah, exactly. I felt that the other modalities really understood that they were treating a person and not a problem. I'd felt as a patient often that I'd been reduced to, you know, a bed number and a surgery or a particular treatment. There was an instance during ward rounds when I was recovering from my major surgery where I'd, I'd started to get better as you would expect, you know, I was 29 and I was fit and healthy otherwise. And then all of a sudden I I stopped getting better and it took a little while for the team to work out what had happened. It turned out eventually that the anastomosis had had a leak and I ended up with an infection. But in that time between me becoming increasingly unwell and then working that out, you know, I just felt like the, the machine continued and I got further and further from where I was meant to be. There was one particular ward round where um, this big group arrived very early, and I only recognised a couple of the faces. But they were ch- kind of chatting over a laptop, and I didn't understand much of what was happening. And it was like six thirty a.m. And and then someone stood forward and you know, they literally pointed at me and said, "If you don't start eating, we're going to put a tube down your throat." Mm-hmm. And I had had problems eating. You know, I, I, every time I put food to my mouth, I would dry retch and gag, and and I didn't know why. And I wanted to eat more than. Nothing else. You know, I even got mum to bring me in cheeseburgers <laughs> and fries, thinking that was the key. And I would just gag and gag and gag. And this went on every meal for days. And I knew the nurses were concerned. But that person standing forward and pointing at me, you know, threatening the tube, as she called it. And I'd heard these tubes go down people's throats. I didn't know what they were for, but I was terrified of them. Later on, I reflected, you know, when I got over the fear of the tube you know she was, she was able to do that because none of that stuff mattered. you know it didn't matter what I'd seen on the ward or what I'd heard other people experience. It didn't matter that I was struggling to eat myself you know and and I was so confused about what's happening to my body. I was just you know bed four that wasn't eating and wasn't getting better. It was almost dehumanizing in a way. I, w- I was reduced to a problem and they'd forgotten there was a person there. And I think, you know, your question is spot on. I think a lot of the other types of treatment and therapy, calling them that loosely, they get that. They know that if you don't take the whole person on the journey, you lose the person. And it isn't just about the technical transfer of knowledge and understanding, which is what doctors have always been, but I think it's evolving. It's it's about really taking that person with you On their medical journey and towards healing and you know when i went to med school i realized why a lot of doctors practice this way it's just almost entirely ignored and i thought wow you know i've i've seen now having gone to med school sick having felt things as a patient in a gown in a busy ward i could see where all this stuff begins and it begins with our training
0: So that's interesting. You have recently gone through the medical school process and are coming out the other side of all of that training. What do you feel needs to change within that education process or what changes do you think need to start to be made to rectify some of this?
1: So I was shocked by a few things at med school. One was the divide between, you know how earlier we talked about the divide Mm -hmm. I'd felt as a patient between myself and my doctor? I saw that divide at medical school between me and my colleagues. So I, I went, I went, aha, okay. So this is kind of where it starts. We select, on average, and I'm always talking about averages here. I don't blame particular people or particular schools. We select people that are a little odd. You know, they pretend to come from what we would call "quote unquote" good postcodes. They have been to pretty nice schools. Their parents are professions, if not doctors they probably grew up with private health insurance their families on average don't have the kinds of socially determined illnesses that you know that we learn at med school it means that their experience of illness and healthcare is a little different from the average australian they have also been selected because of a particular skill set which basically when you distill it down is just sitting at a desk and reading And memorizing and focusing. Now, they're great skills and they're skills you need in med school. I'm not saying that because there's a vast amount of technical knowledge to acquire in a short period of time. But we've got to acknowledge that if we select that skill set, it comes at a cost. It comes at a cost to other stuff. So you aren't going to necessarily get a fully rounded person that's got all these other interests in life and all these other social and socio-emotional and empathic and leadership and mentorship skills. Now, that's okay if you decide that's who we're going to select, but then you've got to teach that stuff, right? Because you've got to acknowledge that you've selected someone that's slightly different, might not represent the people they're eventually going to heal, and you need to address that by giving them those skills. I was shocked that that largely wasn't there. It's taught in sometimes very tokenistic ways, but we haven't fully embraced what it means to educate a healer. What we mainly educate are technicians. We mainly educate people good at diagnosis, good at interpreting tests, good at analyzing and fixing anatomy. And those skills are very important. I've never taken away from that. But there's a lot more to medicine and there's a lot more to healing. You just have to ask the patients, right? You know, the example I gave before of that ward round, that's 11 years Mm -hmm. ago that that happened. I'm five years out of med school. I'm 10 years away from my cancer diagnosis. I still feel that ward round, you know, despite the amazing technical knowledge, you know, the six hour surgery, the hundreds of thousands of dollars in chemotherapy and radiotherapy that saved my life. I'm left, I'm left with that memory and those things linger and they go on to corrupt the doctor patient relationship. So they're the kinds of things I would like to change selection and training. And then, you know, you could pump out the most well informed, empathic, uh, collegiate doctors in the universe, but they're going to enter a system that doesn't reward that. It doesn't reward those skills often. It rewards, again, very technical stuff. It rewards KPIs that might not necessarily have. The patient's best interest, and it puts them into a, a hostile system. I would argue, where there's this tension between what they're expected to do and what they mm-hmm. want to do, the type of care they're expected to deliver and the care they want to deliver, and also this global tension between their training, which is their goal, and their job, which is what the system needs them to do. And there's this constant push-pull. You know, I, I'm a registrar now. I'm well and truly aware of that push-pull. But I think all of this erodes who they are as people it erodes who they are and i think most people go to med school with the right intentions you know i think they want to go to help people and they want to heal but you have to protect those values weirdly ironically paradoxically because the training the education the incentive system the postgraduate training system will do everything it can to erode those
0: A Healthy Exchange podcast is brought to you by Rural Health Pro with the support of the New South Wales Ministry of Health. If you care about keeping rural Australia healthy, then Rural Health Pro is your community. The Rural Health Pro platform connects health professionals with colleagues, scholarships, training and career opportunities to help them thrive. It's free and easy to join. Visit ruralhealthpro.org today. What place do you think, or what part, I should say, do you think mentoring and leadership play in this?
1: They are critical. (laughs) I mean, we just have to look at any other sector in society. You know, sometimes I feel like medicine's still in the 50s and 60s. The corporate world understands all of this. They're so good. You know, my sister's an executive leadership coach, right? So some of my bias comes from what she's taught me about this space, but it's quite sophisticated. You know, there are a lot of Evidence based, sophisticated ways of teaching and training and engaging people in workplaces, empowering leadership, cultivating empathy and communication skills, and building good colleagues. You know, the thing that struck me, again, coming back to the fundamentals of med school, was medicine is a team mm-hmm. sport. Anyone who works in it knows that, but it's largely individualistic in the way that it's taught and rewarded. So you don't set people up often to be good mentors, good team players, good communicators, and importantly, good leaders. The leadership thing that you've asked is extra special because as you know, the medical hierarchy is intense and there is a lot of power at the very top of it and then it slowly trickles down. It's, it's an old system. There is some benefit to it. You know, Surgeons and nurses will pull me aside at conferences and tell me sometimes why the hierarchy is important But we've got to acknowledge then that that means that there's authority, but there's not necessarily leadership. And when the people at the top with authority do things that aren't great, they say things that aren't great, and they act in ways that actually harm the people around them, that transmits down the system. You know, we we call it the hidden curriculum, but it happens anywhere. You know, we're social animals and we're constantly modeling each other. The most recent training survey of junior doctors across Australia. Um, was it phenomenal. It's getting you know more and more popular. More and more junior doctors are filling it out. I think last time there were over twenty three thousand junior doctors, which is about fifty five percent of the workforce. You know, one in three see unacceptable behaviour, bullying, and harassment regularly enough to want to report it, but they don't report it. And this is a conversation we have to have because the lead protagonist of that behaviour it's senior doctors. So your question goes to the heart of you know, actually seeding change from the very top. And you do that by teaching people how to lead well and making them accountable for their behaviour.
0: So in a busy environment where there is a lot of need, well, it is the profession to have, you know, clinical expertise and CPD training, how do you think we can make the time to dedicate to this type of training?
1: Yeah, it always comes back to time. (laughs) time's a funny one to talk about because if you looked at the way that things are currently set up, you'd you'd conclude that there's not enough time. But I actually think the way we use the time that we currently have probably lends itself to some inefficiencies. And again, you know, I come back to the evidence base on this. There's evidence around how we use our time and how we engage with patients in different settings to better use our time. It doesn't take more time, I think is the the take home. It's a better use of our current mm-hmm. time. I, I always come back to a study and, and I use this in my, um, you know, when I was in the ED last night until 10.30 in, in Sydney. I remember a study I learned about um, as an intern where they had um, two conditions. So a doctor went up to a patient and stood bedside And the doctor went up to a patient and sat down at the bedside. And I know the infection control people are probably (laughs) freaking out at the moment, but (laughs) let's just hold that. Um, And they were allowed to talk for the same amount of time and they had a similar message to deliver. And then they asked the patients afterwards to rate how much time they thought the doctor spent with them and put some value around that interaction. And the doctors who sat down consistently you know, made their patients feel like they spent more time with Mm -hmm. them and they had a better quality interaction. There's things we can do with our current time that means we actually save time because a patient that feels like they're more validated and they're heard and they're listened to is better heard and listened to. And that's a patient that's more likely to understand what you're prescribing and maybe more likely to take the intervention that you're suggesting. they're more likely to flag concerns with you down the track. I think the simple solution is just people to say more doctors, I don't necessarily think that's the key. I think we you know we re-engineer the day, we think about how we use the time. I mean, is a ward round really the most efficient way to start a day to have that that throng of people <laughs> scrambling after the consultant <laughs> bouncing from patient to patient. I heard about this awesome intervention that's happening at one of the hospitals I work at now, where the orthopedics team have actually learned from a video game that asks that the challenge is to maximize your food delivery time and diner satisfaction, right? So, what you do is you kind of run orders out in a sequence and then the food flows in at a sequence rather than ordering all the meals at once. Now, hang with me. So, what the orthopedics team did was during the ward round, they've got a junior with them who's kind of trying to keep up and trying to scramble, you know, Mm -hmm. continue management, (laughs) cease antibiotics, and that person is talking in real time to a resident in the office who's doing the tasks. So, rather than finishing the ward round at, say, like 10 or 11 And then having 50,000 jobs to do, which corrupt the rest of the day and contaminate your ability to talk to patients and be good colleagues, these tasks are rolling through as the ward round is unfolding. Now, that's not a sophisticated Mm. solution, which brings us to tech, Mm. right? Like we're largely immune to tech. In healthcare, I mean, I still send faxes. I sent one last night and, you know, my phone doesn't work inside the hospital because there's reception black holes and I'm not allowed to use WhatsApp to talk to people even though it would be far more convenient to liaise with my colleagues that way. So -hmm. you're left kind of in this web Mm 2.0 vacuum. Imagine like if we just applied a bit of like Uber technology to healthcare. (laughs) Like how is it I can order food and know that the person who's driving – I know what their rating system is. I know the stop that they've got to make on the way. I know whether the food's ready or it's waiting in a bag or it's on its way. And you go to a waiting room in a busy clinic at one thirty, and you're not seen until 5.30 and you have no idea mm-hmm. why. You have no idea what's happened. I mean, we could do a lot, couldn't we, to democratize and make more transparent the system. And I think if you give doctors and patients more power over their time, because your question was yeah. about time, I think- big things would change and they don't need to be massive. I think there's a lot of low-hanging fruit in healthcare.
0: And I think maybe you're right. It's looking at the low-hanging fruit and perhaps trying to... I think if you look at the whole system, it's probably overwhelming, but bite-sized pieces and one step at a time could in fact uh, apply massive change across the board. We have focused a little bit on some of the challenges within this environment and leadership there is so much that is so good and so right within the system. Can we talk about some of that for a bit?
1: <laughs> Absolutely. That's the, the important part. So some, Sometimes um, I remember um, when, my, when my book first came out, somebody wrote, well, why is this guy still a doctor? Like He must be, he must be miserable and hate the place. And I don't. I'm, and for the very reason you've asked, there is so much optimism and there is so much hope. I call it the appetite for change. It's everywhere. It's at every sector. It's in hospital. It's out of hospital. It's at pharma. It's medico legal. It's med school. Everybody acknowledges that the world is becoming more complicated, that patients are getting increasingly complicated, that their needs are evolving. And they're working on ways to address that. You know, the, the orthopedic team making the ward round more efficient so that patients can get discharged earlier and get tests earlier is, is one example. There's loads of stuff occurring right across the system. You know, Some med schools are getting rid of grades and just having, you're a doctor. That's at the end, you're just, a, oh, welcome everybody, you're a doctor. It didn't matter where you sat in the rank. We're not going to punish you for that. We're not going to incentivize that. Everybody needs to reach a standard, welcome aboard, which reduces some of the competition and hostility. There's a lot of training programs that are having to evolve, you know, there's talk of gender quotas in some specialties, which are trying to balance that. There's protected hours, there's paid meal breaks, there's lots of stuff that's happening across the board. There's lots of patient-friendly endeavors happening, you know, some services now are getting quite sophisticated about, you know, those surveys that mm. patients are asked to fill on their way out yeah. the door, you know, and it's, and a lot of it is, you know, what, what we would call the soft stuff or the the touchy-feely stuff, which I think is the backbone of healthcare, they're mapping that, you know, those patient satisfaction scores to health outcomes. So when someone leaves hospital, let's say they've got diabetes and they weren't satisfied with their stay, what does that mean in three months and six months? And there's data emerging from New South Wales Health, which shows quite clearly the least engaged and the least satisfied have more complications. They are less likely to engage in the treatments you've suggested and they come back to hospital more frequently. So I think we, we can no longer ignore this stuff and people are listening and people are engineering patient-friendly, doctor-friendly stuff right across the board.
0: Doctors no doubt have a high-stress work environment. In fact, medical staff across the board work in high-stress environments. How have you learned to cope with anxiety of being both a patient and the stress of being a doctor and are the techniques the same for both
1: oh it's a nice that's a nice question to think about isn't it I mean they are different I think they're very different I've maybe almost partitioned them in my mind you know I, I it was a bit cheeky of me to call the book the patient doctor <laughs> um I mean I, I'm quite proud of the title don't get me wrong but I think um you know we're all we're all both of those things if you're working in healthcare you know you've You've got the nurse with lived experience. You've got the social worker with lived experience. We're we're all clinicians, and we're all also consumers, for lack of a better term. I treat the anxiety of cancer, doing things like supporting others in in the space. I find that therapeutic. I find um, mindfulness quite helpful. I have a little bit of you know, we're we're doctors, so we like knowledge and information, Mm -hmm. right? We don't like uncertainty. So if something comes up, like my most recent colonoscopy, for example, which threw up a a kind of a red herring, I've gone 10 years having clean scopes. And just recently, my my most recent scope showed this explosion in polyps and my colorectal surgeon can't explain it. My, My GP doesn't quite understand what's happening you know, I even consulted a colorectal geneticist to see if there was an underlying syndrome, but my colon all of a sudden is trying to kill me again. You know, one of the polyps was big. It's about two and a half centimeters. It, it had grown that big in three years, which isn't a long time. And it had some dysplasia, you know, it was focal, thank God. And, and it was removed, but the cells in my colon are undergoing changes. And I, and I was again, reminded of cancer, you know, it never kind of left me but it got easier to deal with. And and that was an anxious time. And I just went back to those strategies that I used the first time, which which helped. And I, I tend to write, you know, having written a book, I tend to jot things down, either in a diary or little reflective notes. Now, the doctoring side is different because the challenges are different. I don't find myself anxious as a doctor, which is interesting, mm. isn't it? I've, I found myself anxious as a med student, mm. And, and that's not uncommon. Mm, yeah. <laughs> you know, that, that that kind of anticipation that at any time I could mm. test it on my knowledge and pointed at in a lecture theater or singled out on a ward round and that knowledge was currency. And it really made me doubt myself and and fear myself. And this is going to sound silly, in a way that cancer never yeah. did. It kind of chipped away at me in a way that my major illness did not, so I'm taking a long time to answer your question. But I think it's a it's a complicated question. The anxieties are different, um, and so the the solutions are different. In psychiatry, you know, where the, where the doctors of feelings, I'm encouraged to reflect on what I'm doing, and I think reflection is so important to what we do as clinicians. Again, it's not necessarily a skill that's taught well. I talk to my colleagues, I vent like everybody else <laughs> around cups of instant instant roast um, and, and on late night shifts, you know, finding cold sandwiches. I get involved in things, you know, like if there's behavioral change programs or committees happening at the hospital, you know, to me, I try to channel that anxiety into action. You know, what what can I do to address how I'm feeling? Not not just how I'm feeling for me, but everyone else must be feeling like this or a lot of other people must be feeling like this. So I tend to scale it up. You know, I tend to leap to what can I do at a system level to help fix some of this stuff.
0: We've touched on your book that is about your experiences. What do you hope a reader will get out of it?
1: It's a tricky one because I wrote the book for a few different people. um, And again, it it comes back to the title. I wanted patients to feel like they could pick it up and it, it wasn't going to be Book by Doctor for Doctors. And I wanted doctors to pick it up who were interested in thinking about the way we do health and what it means to have lived experience. I effectively wrote the book to bring these two sides of the doctor patient relationship a little closer together. I felt, you know, we've talked about the divide, we've talked about the training differences, we've talked mm-hmm. about the power and information asymmetry between doctors and patients we've talked about their frustrations and the fact that they enter this low tech often you know opaque environment i wanted them to understand each other as people because it sounds really silly but it's just two people right it's two humans interacting which is something we've done for the entire history of our species but medical school And then healthcare seems to almost have forgotten that it was built for people, that it's people that inhabit it. It's people that work and sometimes live and function and look for purpose within this system, within this ecosystem, right? If we go back to my zoology, it's habitat. And I wanted these two sides to come together. I wanted the patient to feel empowered, to interact with their doctor as a person and I I wanted doctors to not be afraid of interacting with their patients as people, and and in that, give over a little bit of themselves. I'm not talking about you know telling them the time they had the flu or telling them the time they broke their leg. It, it's not about that. It's about taking an interest in the patient as a person and then connecting as people. You know, the technical knowledge sometimes we race to get out. You know, we want to give it all, dump it all, transmit it all. But there's a lot more to the relationship than that. Patients know this, but they don't often feel empowered to ask, which was one goal. And doctors, I think, are afraid of this because they think it might come at a cost to themselves when really my experience and having looked at the literature is it actually will make them better clinicians and it often means they end up more satisfied.
0: Well, Ben, it has been absolutely fabulous a delight speaking with you today i feel honestly we could chat for another hour or so (laughs) um (laughs) uh, i really want to thank you so much for your time and for sharing your experiences with us and having read your book i can highly recommend it to everybody the patient doctor is available in all good bookstores ben thank you so much
1: thank you very much
0: A Healthy Exchange is produced by Rural Health Pro, funded by New South Wales Health. For more information, visit our website at ruralhealthpro.org forward slash s forward slash New South Wales Health. That's ruralhealthpro.org forward slash s forward slash New South Wales Health. In the meantime, please like, follow and share. Thanks for listening. The information provided in this podcast is of a general educational nature only. The views expressed are that of the presenters and not of New South Wales Health or Rural Health Pro.